Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm joined for another Q&A with Dr. Mike Isratel, uh, and we're going to jump straight into questions because I felt bad for last time having just spoke to Mike about my selfish, just interest into what he was doing. So we're going to jump straight into Mohammed's uh, question, and he has asked, any thoughts on the optimal number of movement slash exercises for one muscle group in a single session? He said, provided weekly volume is same or close to MRV. It's a great question. So uh, one to three, one to three is the answer for most people. And it comes down to a few things. One, how much volume do you have to put in to that muscle group per session? So for example, like if you train back four times a week, you know, how many sets per session are you ever going to be able to do and recover from? We'll say like four to eight sessions or four to eight sets per session. Geez, that's a lot. You know, 32 sets of back a week at the top of that's kind of crazy, right? So with four to eight sets of something, even less, let's say three to six sets. Like if you switch exercises a lot, you're just being wildly inefficient with your time. And also you say, yeah, but I want to hit this part of the muscle and this other part. Well, if you train with low per session volumes, probably train with more sessions per week. That means there's always time to do another exercise in another session. And the cool thing is, is that offers automatically really good fatigue management variation because instead of doing barbell curls and dumbbell curls Monday and Wednesday, you do just barbell curls Monday, just dumbbell curls Wednesday. And one of them gives you a break from the specific joint structure irritation of the other. So it's kind of really cool. There's, it's just you, the monotony is lower psychologically because you get a real big mix. And also you don't end up sort of having high, as high risk of chronic wear and tear. So that's, that's really goes against the using all the exercises in one session kind of thing. Like you see pro bodybuilders do this a lot of videos where they like do five movements for back. What the fuck does your next back workout look like? Well, so it's the same. Okay, well, then three months later, when all the movements are stale, what are you going to do? You've run out of all of your best movements. So I, who knows, right? Who knows the answer to that? There's another concern. So, so, so one is we want to conserve variation. The second concern is uh, uh, potentially if you train with a lower frequency, let's say twice a week, some muscles are a little bit more complex and have distinct regions, right? So for example, if you have upper pecs and lower pecs, you have a hamstring a hip extension and hamstring knee flexion. Uh, the back classic, right? People say like, I just do pull-ups for the back. Well, then you're missing like a third of the back that's involved in horizontal pulling, right? So uh, basically like th those start to paint a picture of if you have a lower frequency program, like two sessions a week or so, maybe hit both aspects of the muscle and really sort of two function is you can recover all your bases. The first for back work, two actually if you do back twice a week, a for and a horse pulling really as well. So if you're doing um, triceps, then maybe some kind of extension uh, overhead uh, and or some kind of press, and then some kind of uh, push down slash dip or something like that. It's probably good to handle all the triceps. You know, for quads, you could make the uh, assertion that some kind of leg extension, knee extension thing, and then some kind of um, uh, pressing variant, whether it's squat, leg press, whatever. For and you know. Um, upper packs, lower packs, that sort of thing. So now we're up to like two exercises uh, sometimes. But again, that rule can be violated if you train like three or four times a week, same muscle. You just hit like one of them each time. You know what I mean? And all the fibers get recruited anyway. Like if you train back four times a week, two of those sessions can be only vertical pulling and two can be only horizontal. And there's not a problem in the world with that. You know, nobody's going to ever say like, why don't you hit your horizontal like more often? Like why? Holy shit. Like it gets hit like twice a week. That's totally golden. So we're super good to go. 
And then lastly, uh, the last constraint, which sort of ends up uh, giving us this one to three exercises thing, is the SFR. Um, there is a reduction in the stimulus to fatigue ratio if you do too many sets of the same exercise where you could have just started another exercise. James and I have coached a ton of people that have looked at a ton of stuff and have ourselves trained a lot. We have this a lot of thought. And James Hoffman and I have come to the conclusion that something between five to seven sets of a single exercise is about the most many people would ever want to do until SFR really, really just comes down. So for example, if you're training quads and you've done six sets of leg presses, is doing a seventh set of leg press a good idea or is doing like uh, one set of like walking lunges a good idea? By your seventh set of leg press, your mind-muscle connection is going to be dog shit. You're just psychologically just not going to want to be there. And you're starting to like sort of impinge on various joint structures. Your muscle might no longer be the limiting factor there. But if you switch the movement, even in the same session, it's a really, really novel stimulus. Your mind-muscle connection might be better. It's psychologically more fresh. So what we like to see is like if you have a total of under five sets in a session, one movement is totally cool. You can do two, but one is fine. If you have five to 10 in a session, we would prefer you do two movements and almost never just one movement. That, that's kind of ridiculous. And if you have 10 to 15, let's say in the high end, you can survive and benefit from up to 15 sets per session, which is probably possible for a short time at least, or for some folks that recover very fast. Then, you know, up to three exercises uh, per muscle group is a good idea, maybe even four. But then again, like the argument against doing any more than like 12 uh, sets per session is pretty good. You just do more sessions if you can recover like that. And then back to 12, we're back to three. You know, that means four sets per exercise. That's really golden. And just another thing on the SFR perspective, there's sort of two on there. One is using one exercise for too long sees a dip in SFR. But SFR, at least from a mind-muscle connection perspective, tends to rise as you do the first couple of sets of an exercise. So like your first set of leg press is great, but like, gee, you know, like, you know, it's a little off. It feels a little different, like you got a great performance, but the mind-muscle connection wasn't that great. And it's a lot of fatigue that you're paying. On the second set, however, just as a standalone set, you might have figured out foot position a bit more. You got a little bit of a pump. You're warmed up really well. You're settled in. You've got some biofeedback. And now that second set feels fucking great. And that third set feels like money in the bank. It's so good if all sets could just be third sets. I mean, holy crap. Like just everything's grooving. You've got a massive pump, perfect mind-muscle connection. You really know your RIR by that point. Like you know exactly how many reps you have to hit. There's no more mysteries. So we don't like to see people do like one set per exercise or two sets per exercise because like they're just starting to get into the groove and then they change exercises. Like again, some the way some pros train on videos, like they'll do like one set of pull downs hard and they'll do like one set of rows hard and they'll do dumbbell row and then they'll do machine row. I'm like, dude, after a while, I do anything once, that's the next thing I want to do is another set of that to have an even better set. Basically, my muscle connection wise, I'm not dumping that. I'm not going anywhere. Like, also with big movements, like you warm up for the squat. Can you imagine doing one set in the squat and then leaving to go do leg press? Fuck that. I'm not putting all those goddamn plates on the leg press, taking them off the squat. And that's not even like a laziness concern. That's extra fatigue and time spent in the gym in a catabolic state where you could just be out. So, like, once you set up in an exercise, both the physical setup of putting weights on the bar, getting the machine, because, you know, in, in public gyms, like, you don't always, you, you might have to wait five minutes for the leg press. Once you've got a squat rack or a leg press, it's yours for as long as you want it. And then uh, lastly, on the, just the mind muscle connection and, and SFR stuff, like once you're grooving, you're grooving. And then after four sets, you're like, Ooh, this is great. You know, set five could be better. It could be about the same as set four. Set six is like, dude, I get it the fuck out of here. And set seven's like, why am I still on this machine? So uh, it's one of those situations where that sort of paints the landscape. It ends up being like uh, anywhere between three 
and and six sets per exercise is probably that golden go- zone. Three and three to five is the golden zone, um, and anywhere between two and seven is fine uh, if you can hack it and if you like that. But that basically sort of maps onto depending on your frequency, one to three exercises. Uh, one if you're higher frequency, two if you're intermediate frequency. And three, if you just have a muscle group that's very complex, like the back, and you train it relatively frequently, like twice a week, then you can do three exercises uh, for each one, like maybe a heavy row, heavy pull up, and then a lighter row, high rep on one day. And then the other day would be like a heavy uh, for the rows um, or heavy for the vertical pulling and then lighter for the rows and, and some other kind of like squeezing exercise at the end. Really, really well explained, Mike. And the only thing I wonder if um, it's just something I found as coaching people through kind of starting at MEV, going through MRV, and even with myself, where MEV is below like five sets. So I feel like I only need one exercise in that session. But then by the time I'm towards kind of going through MAV up to MRV, like sets have gone over five. And so I need another movement there to distribute that volume. So just so people like they might think they only need one, but look at the sets maybe they're doing later on. Yes, exactly. So you have to basically kind of know yourself and this is all this is all advice for intermediates anyway, because beginners just have it much more simple. Like beginners almost always just need one exercise per muscle group per session. Uh, but with intermediates and, and more advanced folks, it, it's not where you are now, it's where you're going. So like it's funny too, because all these rules are violated when you're at the beginning of your mesocycle. You're like two sets of squats and one set of leg press. And so I'm just like, why did you just do leg press? Why not three sets of squats? You're like, cause in a couple of weeks I'll be doing four sets here and three sets there, and I'm not gonna be able to just do seven sets of squats. So that definitely uh is a thing that you have to consider but on average through the middle of the yeah. cycle that's kind of where these numbers play out yeah absolutely awesome cool we get to the next question which is from andrew white and he has asked uh, we always talk about body fat distribution being genetically predetermined are there any case studies in which this might not be the case in the sense that it could be changed despite an initial predisposition let's consider a specific example say a person is skinny fat and diets down to respectively lean level, but still has the ghosts of their skinny fatness in terms of a bit of unwanted chub on the love handles or lower belly. Over time and as muscle developed, is there a chance that their body fat distribution will actually improve in terms of aesthetics? In other words, if on the diet, the love handles are the last to go, will they always be the last to go in future diets? Or can getting jacked and lean alter this in any meaningful way you know of? Hopefully that makes sense. Thanks as always thanks for the for incredible the content. Uh, thanks for the question. It makes very good sense. There are some studies on, uh, uh, Menno has actually cited on spot reduction that show very, very tiny differences. Uh, spot reducing fat in areas of higher activity around muscles of higher activity. But the difference is like only detectable with like, incredibly incredibly invasive methods that are like super super tiny differences that may not amount to anything um another problem is like okay so then core activity would preferentially burn fat around your core but unfortunately the way the human being is designed there's only so much core activity you can do i mean like you can do this with your hands right and you can do that and that pick up cups put them down and at your job use your hands a lot use your feet a lot all the time and sort of to that end, they're actually both very lean. You know, your forearms are always like, you know, my forearms are in contest shape all the time. So, so are yours, so are everyone's. But uh, how the fuck do you move your core that much? That's it's, You're not going to just do this all the time. It's crazy, right? So uh, maybe there's an inherent problem with applying that. 
there are some hormonal shifts that tend to alter body composition, uh, sorry, body fat distribution, particularly females that take male hormones to prepare for shows. They start to exhibit more um, android obesity that become, uh, or android adiposity rather, that become more male-like in the body fat distribution, less in the hips and thighs and, and more in the waist and stuff, which is not great for them and they don't like it, but also they're so lean, it's sort of irrelevant uh, when you don't have any fat, it doesn't really matter where it is. Um, but lastly, and unfortunately, the answer is it changes, uh, I think, most things, almost not at all, as far as I can tell. Um, I used to be uh, pretty over fat, and I had uh, huge love handles and a uh, huge gut. And uh, I still have loose skin around them, and they still have the most fat on my body. Uh, like you guys have seen the pictures of my quads uh, recently on Instagram, where it's just covered with riddle of veins. Um, and my love handles look like I'm like... 30 or 40 weeks out of contest shape, you know, like, uh, so it sucks. Right. But like, you know, I, if I knew how to do anything about it, I could, um, I've been told that if you inject growth hormone directly into the fatty areas, that there is a, there is an effect there. Uh, it might be true. Um, but that, even that effect takes months and years to express itself. It's very moderate. So it's, it's tough. Uh, unfortunately, body fat redistribution is something that doesn't seem to happen in a very, very big way i wonder mike it just made me think of talking about kind of the stubborn body fat and the core you can't kind of use it like you do your forearms and your feet with the kind of those uh i'm thinking of the the kind of things you put on your ab that then make them contract kind of you turn them on and then it just like and people are like oh this is going to get me a six-pack and i think even uh ronaldo the the footballer like has, is advertising these as the model sure. obviously he had a six-pack before even <laughs> putting right. these on does that eight, would that eight have, hours of soccer a day you know? <laughs> yeah would that have any application like is there actually anything there because i guess yeah, it maybe. is that's very interesting and uh, then the only other thing is i've seen I, I don't know what it is that people are using i don't what's in the kind of the cream but some people are using like these topical creams that like heat up the area and they're hoping that that's potentially going to help i think I there's not great the science cream. behind it but no the, i think cool sculpting works where they basically kill off fat cells subcutaneously it's pretty fucking expensive and i don't know what it's going to do to your water storage situation because I'll tell, I'll tell you so so I've known uh, multiple folks that have had bariatric surgery and have had uh, skin reduction surgery and have had liposuction and uh, unfortunately for them there is a significant amount of fluid that's stored deep to the uh, skin in those sites so the, the water balance is all off and they end up retaining water in those mm -hmm. sites and I've known them for at least a year there was still a huge problem so it's one of those things like I'm not sure if cool sculpting does that because it does, it does cause necrosis of the cells as far as I know. So that always comes with a huge, it's, it's a huge interference, you know, and it's not like they magically just disappear. Like they die and they might leave some scarring behind. They might leave some pockets for water, water, could, uh, water balance could be off. So you might be, not have fat there anymore, but you might not be able to ever get like a super ripped look, uh, super dry skin because it's just a huge water retention problem. So I would, I would steer people away from those methods until and unless they become really, really well-crafted to where they don't do that for sure. The creams and stuff almost certainly don't work, but we can hold out on a possibility that they will eventually. There's nothing categorically prohibitive for them not to work. They just so far don't. Uh, as for the uh, putting the ab shocker on, the way that would burn more fat hypothetically would be if you actually had low impulse uh, contractions like the entire day or for like five hours per day. So 
normally those things cause your abs to contract titanically and like pretty impressively. And that'll make you sore shit. It'll be way too much if you keep it on for five hours. Maybe the low amplitude contractions can be for longer. But like, what, you're going to like sit at work and just always sort of crunch your abs a little bit. It's kind of annoying. It, 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 I don't know if it's worth the effort. Maybe it is, but uh, I would be skeptical if that sort of thing worked out in real life. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of the Revive Stronger member site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, a growing exercise library, presentations, research reviews, and courses. If you want to get involved, sign up via the description. I'm thinking in terms of at least for like male bodybuilders, it's typically like the glutes, the hamstrings, they're the last areas to come in. So I bet there's a lot of people who would hope and even like, I don't know if this is more in natural bodybuilding, but it's certainly the thing in natural bodybuilding where the like for me at least my upper body will be diced and then my lower body will be like eh, it's a good few months probably to go so if that could if you could somehow expedite the process down there you'd be coming sure. in potentially a better shape and you wouldn't have to sacrifice maybe some size of the upper body for sure but- it's, it's funny too because of, if you could just get your glutes and hamstrings diced the way current judging works is you jump up multiple places even if the rest of you is not particularly you know, like, cause they're just like, that's how really a lot of people judge conditioning nowadays is if you have sharp glutes, you're good to go. And there's actually, there's some guys in the pro circuit who like, they have pretty sharp glutes when the rest of them is not that great. And it's just like, they just do better, you know, cause they're just, they're just, they got it. And then like, there's guys like back in the day, Melvin Anthony, sharp all over, phenomenal physique. He never got striated glutes ever, just basically impossible for him. And he never did as well as he could have done with the rest of his physique because he just never had that glute thing. And he was mm. pissed about it too. He was like, God damn it, this is a glute contest, but it's the way it was. Yeah, we spoke about that a lot last time. It's <laughs> ringing bells. So uh, we'll get to the next question. Uh, so this is from Holger Dumsky, and he's asked, when performance increases and body weight doesn't change, is it a need to force an increase in body weight? And otherwise, if body weight goes up and performance stagnates, is it needed to increase calorie intake? So for the second one, it's easy to answer. Performance is stagnating. Body weight is going up. There's a good chance you're gaining fat uh, a lot more than muscle and or water or something. So I would definitely not increase the food at that point. I would actually say if body weight is continuing to increase, but your performance is stagnated, it's time for at least a deload and possibly a mini cut, maintenance phase and a mini cut, because like you're clearly just not sensitive to muscle gain anymore. Um, on the other hand, if performance is increasing, but your body weight's not going up, there's no algorithmic solution to that because we need one more variable of concern. And that variable is, you know, what is your goal for your body weight and you are track with that sort of thing? Like, are you interested in gaining more weight? Which is a lot of times why objective goals are better than just sort of going by feel. Uh, you say, okay, like Steve, like one of your uh, masses a couple of a couple of mass cycles ago, you were like gonna go and get to 200 pounds, like one way or another was gonna happen. And it's not like one way or another, like it was a long shot, like you were close and you were gonna do it. So that, like if you were 198 for three weeks in a row, you would have asked me, should I raise my calories? Yes, of course, but the goal is 200. And there's not a huge downside there with extra added fat because it's just two pounds away. But like you set a goal, you gotta get the goal. Because if, if you don't have a rigor about achieving your goals, you know, you could start at 175 and say, I'm gonna get to 185. You can have great pumps and great eating and great sessions and tons of fun over the whole summer, and then you end up being like 177. And someone's like, "Well, so did your did your mass phase work?" And you're like, "I had a great time, but like, no." And then someone's like, well, "What do you think you'd have done differently?" You're like, "I should have just objectively ate more to get to my goal." And yeah, I might have been a little fat on the other end, 
but maybe it was the goal was too Napoleonic. But if it's a rational goal, you get a little fat, but you gain tons of muscle. And some of that has to come through force feeding. Like there's no, it's nowhere described that your natural appetite regulation is going to gift you the amount of muscle that you want. As a matter of fact, there's very good reasoning to say that it never will do that unless you're a very special snowflake. Your body doesn't want to be big. It's not, it's not a rite of passage. It's not destiny for you to become jacked. You're going to have to do uncomfortable things. Uh, some people will, you know, it's just the time for purposefully uh, feeding yourself more food. So if you're numbers are going up in the gym, that's great. And that probably means you're gaining some muscle under the hood and probably gaining neural abilities and work capacity and all that stuff is really, really good. But your body weight goal should kind of be independent from that. Like it, it, once you set your body weight goal, it should be reasonable and constrained and not excessive. You got to do what it takes to get there. And it kind of doesn't have dick to do with how your numbers are going. And the thing is, if you're in almost every case, as you raise your body weight, your numbers are going to skyrocket anyway. So it's really just kind of like, okay, that, that takes care of itself. But what I want to communicate greatly here is I don't want people who want maximum muscle to think just because their numbers are going up, it means their body weight's fine. Like it's okay. Like, I'm going to get so much stronger. Who cares? Like, who cares is the fucking reason it's called bodybuilding is because you want a bigger fucking body. Like, if you just for some reason are like, yeah, but I'm getting stronger. Like, oh, sweetie, are you a power lifter? Like, no. Well, so why isn't the scale 185? Like, I actually had a question very similar on Instagram recently, I think. Uh, someone was like, what do you think of like the gain taining approach? Or they, they call it something else, uh, uh, main, main gaining or something like that. Same shit, right? Of just the kind of like eating and sort of maybe you'll put on muscle. And th there's more eloquent ways and more logical ways to describe that approach. And he was like, do you think that someone who wants just like a bit of muscle mass and to be in shape should do that? And I think I said something to the effect of like, absolutely until and unless you want more. <laughs> like if you're 165 pounds and you want to be jacked and you're like five foot nine there's just no amount of maintaining that's going to get you jacked because jacked is 180 plus and if you're not getting to 180 you're just not on your way and you can have all the great workouts and eat all the frozen yogurt after training in the world have all the greatest pumps have all the everything and veins you know like just the fun the liveliness of training but none of that shit makes a hill of beans difference unless you're actually on your way to 180 because you can have great great time and be super jacked and just nothing really happens so uh, if you want to be the most jacked you can, you, the body weight has to be a thing that you look at uh, plain and simple. Yeah, I think it's from my personal experience, I have fallen into the trap of I'm like relatively lean, training feels like it's going good. I'm eating plenty. Let's just yeah. stand. I stay there for months and nothing much change. Uh, and, I would <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's uh, it's frustrating and I'm glad that, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, the only thing I was going to say to that is I have seen, I wonder what your thoughts are to this, Mike, where some people will mass to like a new high body weight and similar to, somewhat similar to the kind of the recommendation you may have where you hold that body weight for a period of time before then kind of cutting down or changing direction. But they almost do it as a maintain that higher body weight and almost try and recomp it to make that body weight look better. And they're training at that body weight for ages, basically doing what we're saying. Have you seen kind of, do you think that's time potentially wasted where they could, yeah, lower volume, do a maintenance and go again and build body weight up? Or do you think there's something to kind of making that body weight look better for a period of time? So it's funny, like uh, we had a podcast a little while ago on, on another show with Matt Jansen, who was a enhanced awesome. coach. And we're having a, actually later today, we're recording round two on the peaking stuff. And Matt was actually very clear about something that we didn't uh, particularly ask him about. Uh, he went on a, a really, really good uh, 
not even side, I guess it was related to what we were asking, but it was a little bit, he really managed to like really, really force the issue on this. He said he's many, many clients and himself, he's tried to do the thing where you get them up to a certain high body weight and you hold them there and you try to recon. And he said, he really is not a big fan of that approach. He said, get them up, maintain for a bit, bring them back down, drive up again is the way to make gains. As many waves as you can get in, the better. And I'm not sure where I stand on that. I think both approaches uh, have their merits and demerits and some people respond better to one or the other. But I think I definitely think that the approach of get to a body weight, hold it, has a timeout feature after probably about two to four months, any longer than that. And I've tried longer than that, just nothing happens. Um, here's the thing, when you're gaining muscle from let's say 160 to 180, you're not only were you leaner on average that entire time than you are staying at 180, but you are able to progressively introduce caloric surplus the entire time, which is a huge stimulus for muscle growth. If you stay at 180, by definition, you cannot be in a calorie surplus, so you've taken away your best weapon. And also now, your P ratio is probably not as good because you're fatter. So like, what makes you think you're going to gain a ton of muscle at 180? Um, I don't know. Like, That's a big stretch. Now, of course, all the muscle you put into motion gaining from 160 to 180 hasn't been realized yet. And folks like Cody Hahn are showing muscle growth as a delayed process that sometimes takes weeks to realize, if not longer, so you can set it in motion for a while. And then at the tail end of that, it becomes, uh, you know, realizes after several weeks later, you know, not right away. So maintaining for one or two months after you get to a high note is probably really good if for nothing else because of that. But how much muscle can you actually gain at a maintenance level when you're not a beginner anymore at a new high body weight? Um, inclined to say probably not a lot. We also know that if you lose weight uh, slowly and eat plenty of protein and train hard, you It's very likely you won't lose any muscle at all unless you get super lean. And then we also know that the hypercaloric condition, once you've gotten down there uh, and good training promotes muscle growth on the way back up. So I, I am more, I think it's more clear to me that the up and down, up and down, up and down, not too fast. So with some holding every now and again, is probably better than the get up, hold for a year and then come down. I just don't think towards the last half of the year, a whole lot of anything is happening there. I've tried it myself. I've seen it with clients and people and, and then Matt Jansen is coaching an inordinate number of people. Uh, I will say it's funny though, because the, I think people who use drugs get away with this stuff more often or it works for them because mm -hmm. they get up to a certain body weight, they cool off on the drugs there for a bit and then they start ramping the drugs, keeping their body weight, they recon. But for naturals, they don't even have that option. So it's kind of like, I don't know, I just don't see a lot of muscle growth happening. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. And that it, it makes complete sense in that in, in that way. So it's interesting that Matt has come out and said that because like you say, I think that's it's maybe an approach that maybe is more so used on the kind of the geared side. And I may have heard or read at some point, uh, Lyle mentioned that kind of they do hardening phases. It's kind of like that, but like for an extended period of time. So yeah, sure. it makes a lot of sense. Um, so we have... Oh, quite a few questions, but I'll, I'll just answer, ask the first one from Roberto Ricardiella. And he has asked, uh, he would like an in-depth discussion of large rep drop-offs versus initial set and its effectiveness in evaluating if the work is truly productive versus splitting the work to get uh, better qualities per set. So for example, 15, 12, 11, 8, 6, 5, can we really say that the load we got 15 reps on the first set with is still productive at five reps? So sure, fatigue is a factor, but where is the line drawn to not cross into junk volume? 
Yeah. So um, junk volume can be evaluated completely outside of rep drop-offs. So junk volume is when sets are no longer very stimulative. The number one way you know that is the set is being kept not because of local muscle fatigue and performance, but because of systemic fatigue and ability to perform. So like ideally you want to be curling the dumbbells for a set of 10, but your brain is just like, nope, six is all you get. And you can tell like you're just tired and it's not the bicep getting squeezed like crazy and then failing. It's just like, you're just like, ugh, you're just giving up, right? That's really where junk volume comes from. Rep drop-offs are totally fine because your even local muscles get fatigued and it's okay to recruit them more and more as long as you meet the so four checklist item rest thing where you feel strong again, everything's pretty recovered, you're good to go. I don't think there's any rep drop-off that for now with the current literature we can say is too much short of does it descend below five reps because anything lower than five reps per set, it's just not enough volume to drive enough gains to call it a set equivalent. Like if you do a set of three or four, it does drive hypertrophy, but like you you can't count it as a set in your program. You know, it's maybe half a set worth of standard set stimulus for hypertrophy. As long as it's above five, I think you're good to go. And then everything else, so if it's not systemic fatigue, you're good. It's not junk volume yet. If it's above five, you're good. And then lastly, kind of a third point to consider is the stimulus to fatigue ratio of those descending sets. You can ask yourself, okay, if I do this set of five pull-ups, is it going to be a good stimulus to fatigue ratio compared to if I went to the assistant pull-up machine and did a set of 12 with assistance? And then if the set of 12 with assistance just completely knocks you out, way better stimulus to fatigue ratio than the set of five, then that's your answer is like, yeah, then it's time to do downsets. Um, and it, that's kind of like the decision calculus behind whether or not to do uh, downsets is, is your SFR going to be higher if you do downsets versus if you continue to train as heavy as you are? So that answers, uh, I think that question answers itself based on just perception. Like there's some movements that are just not really conducive to super low reps anymore because a lot of times the time spent generating tension is very low, the amplitude is very low. So for example, like if you do skull crushers, it's like you start out with 15, that's great, great pump, great feel. By the time you're down to sets of six, it's kind of like each set takes like 15 seconds or something. And you're like, man, I don't know. I just feel like I'm training my elbows at this point. My triceps don't even, yeah, they're going close to failure, but they're not even like, they're not putting in enough work to really count as a set of stimulus. If I lowered the weight a little bit and got anything above 10 again, oh my God, these sets are super, super productive. But that's not the case with everything, you know, like multiple movements are totally fine in the low rep ranges and they can degrade quite a bit uh, set to set as far as reps are concerned. And they still feel great uh, every single time because some stuff, the heavier work is just better. And if you lighten up the load, there's just something missing, you know, like stiff-legged deadlifts. If you do a set of like eight, six, five, that last set of five could still be fucking gnarly. It's heavy. It rips your hamstrings up. But if you're like, all right, I got six. I don't want to get five. Let me get eight. If you lighten the load and get eight, you might be like, ah, man, that's just like my lower back is fatigued now. And I, I don't feel the hamstrings as much. I really, like, I really want that heavy loading. So I think that within, if you're within your target rep range and or it's above five reps per set, SFR rules, rules the, the road after that. I think that's really important because I think a lot of people might listen to that and be like, oh, so I can just like my reps can drop off infinitely or like as long as they don't go below five or if they're going below five, I'll just do a down set and they're just like, oh, I'll just do more and more sets. But it's not, a, that's kind of the point you're making is you can diagnose it without, like you don't even see need to see the numbers necessarily in the drop-offs. It's like, are you actually getting a stimulus from that? It should be 
people need to be a little bit more kind of aware of the training stimulus within the session like are you actually getting a stimulus or is that like you're just going through the motions type of thing absolutely awesome so the next question ricardo uh sorry roberto has asked he said the subject is within week progression versus week to week progression in the context of within week training only should sorry let me go again in the context of within week training only should we be aiming to improve reps slash load for the same exercise scheme used for the prior session or should we hold back and aim for at least the same rep slash load and make the jump for the next week he has an example monday and thursday both barbell squat 285 pounds four times 10 to 12 if recovered after monday's lift then on thursday aim to progress or wait for next session and just repeat monday's workout with the same load and reps a good question my first answer would be you should almost never do the same set rep schemes and exercise arrangements within the week i think that's too low a variation and you could do a higher variation it's like the argument between straights straight uh, set rep training in DUP. There's a reason DUP has an advantage is because it introduces within week variation. As long as that variation is still sport specific and not too extreme, it's a really good way to train. So for example, in powerlifting, DUP would be like you do sets of six on uh, Monday, sets of four on Wednesday, and sets of two on Friday. There's no comparison, but there's no way to progress from one to the other. It's just week to week to week. Same thing in a more hypertrophy context, you could do pull-ups on Monday, assisted pull-ups on Wednesday uh, with some rows and then pull-downs and barbell rows on Friday, you can't progress within those. So what I would say is even if you use the same exercises, maybe they should be in a different order or slightly different variations of the exercises. And even if it's the same exercise, same variation, same order and everything, you should you target slightly different loading and rep ranges so that you can get more diversity um, of stimulus, more variation. It prevents monotony, it decreases the chance of injury, and it allows you to make progressions week to week to week, which solves a big complexity problem. Now, if I was, if, if you were really constrained to say training at home, and you really just have to do the same shit at least twice in the same week, then you progress like normal. You just pretend they're different weeks. Uh, you absolutely then progress like normal. But again, remember, progression isn't so much a feed forward process as a feedback process. It's auto-regulated, you know, What's your RIR target? You should have a slightly different RIR target than even within the week. And then you should try to aim a little bit, you know, jump in load and reps to accommodate that uh, increasingly more difficult goal. So yes, it can be done. And then it's done the same way as it is with traditional progression week to week to week. But I would highly encourage people not to program that way and program some diversity so that they're only comparing Mondays to Mondays, Wednesdays to Wednesdays, Fridays, Fridays, stuff like that. Superb. Great. Uh, next question is from Graham. Oh, that's a hard last name to try and pronounce. Ustavine, I think it is. <laughs> Sounds European. Uh, we're going to go with that. So Graham has asked, if time was not a factor, would it be more optimal to do only isolation exercises? Since in compound exercises, there are so many muscle groups that are getting fatigued, but not stimulated enough to grow. You could be spending that fatigue more wisely per se. Great question. I think the answer is no, because the raw stimulus magnitude of many compounds exceeds anything isolations can do. And I'm so convinced of this, I'm willing to put a huge amount of money uh, in any kind of bet anyone wants to have. Um, there is something that leg presses and squats can do to your quads that no amount of leg extensions actually can. Or if we actually say some amount can, that 
amount, maybe double or triple the number of sets. And then the stimulus to fatigue ratio isn't even worth it. There's some stuff isolations can't do. For example, how in fucking God's name would you do isolation moves for your upper back? What is going to hit you other than rows that way? You're going to do some kind of machine cable, this bullshit? Get out of here. You're not even going to get a big back doing that crap. What about no more pull-ups? No more pull-downs. Those are all compound movements. Just straight arm pulls for lats? Like, gee whiz, you're probably missing something. What isolation movement trains your lower back? What isolation movements train your glutes? Uh, and the quads, completely out of the picture, right? Biceps and triceps you can get away with. But even still, there are some compound moves like dips for the triceps, JM presses, overhead presses with a close grip. They're gnarly. And not only do they win on, for sure, raw stimulus magnitude, but uh, they win on a stimulus to fatigue ratio many times because, yeah, they do fatigue other muscle groups, but they stimulate the target muscle so well with so few sets that it's just worth it. And all of a sudden, even if time isn't a factor at all, they're still worth including in the program. So if time is not a factor at all, can you do more isolations than average? Totally. Only when they are justified by stimulus to fatigue ratio and by raw stimulus magnitude. If there's a certain amount of growth you're never going to get in your back ever, 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 unless you do compound vertical and horizontal pulling, it's just never going to happen. All the isolation work in the world, you just plateau at a certain point. And then I think including like, imagine a bodybuilder who's already very jacked, having only done straight arm lap pulls and like peck deck rear flies. And you show him how to do bent rows and pull-ups. Oh my God, he's going to add slabs of meat to his back. And you're going to be like, holy shit, where'd this come from? You're like, well, I was just training like dog shit before. Uh, you know, can you imagine? Here's the thing. Like, it's almost, it's almost funny because this is like a fitness industry joke. You know, those like, uh, uh, how the fuck do you say that in English? I only know it in Russian. Like um, a little, little training station you can buy for your home gym that has like the lat pull down and the plate loaded knee extension and the same thing. Yeah, like, like a, a multi machine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like the universal machine multi-gym thing is hilarious because it has like the leg extension slash you flip over leg curl thing with the fat pads. Could you really think you could build your best legs with that? Like, because if isolations really were as good and you had all the time in the world, you could build enormous quads with just leg extensions or curls. Hell no. Hell no. You're not building your biggest hamstrings with just curls. Well, they could probably do a pretty good job. But quads with just leg extensions? Get out of here. Quads require compound pressing of some kind to be their best. If you don't have a squat rack, maybe a leg press can do a really good job. But honestly, you need all that compound pressing to get the most out of it, and that applies to a bunch of other muscle groups as well. Fast, efficient fat loss. Does that sound like music to your ears? The mini cut movement might just be for you. Mini cuts are like robbing the fat bank. You want to get in and out with as much fat as possible. In a short period of time, you could easily look to lose 6 to 12 pounds of fat. The mini cut movement is excellent. There's group support for extra accountability and also expert help within the group. We have educational videos to keep you on track along the way and you get all your nutrition and training customized and individualized for you. So if that sounds of interest, get involved with the mini cut movement. Mike, do you have a, I don't know if you, there's a definition or even a way of for someone in the gym or when they're training to kind of gauge raw stimulus magnitude is there i assume you do have a definition for it yeah for sure for sure so the raw stimulus magnitude is is uh, proxied by sort of three subcomponents and that's the mind muscle connection the amount of tension you feel in the muscle with heavy weights and the amount of burn you feel with light weights 
uh, the degree of pump per number of sets that you're going to be doing, and the degree of muscle disruption. So, for example, leg extensions versus leg presses in the for quad raw stimulus magnitude. If you do four leg extensions and four leg presses, then you know how big of a uh, mind muscle connection do you get? Like, do you get the perception of your quads are ripping apart at the bottom of a leg extension? Not really. Do your quads burn at the top of a leg extension with high reps? Sure, they do. But like, have you ever done high rep leg press? I mean, it's it's a burn that consumes your entire soul. You're like, it's unbelievable. So, okay, on that one, it wins. Pump. I mean, it's not even close. Like, four sets of leg extension is a good warm up. Four sets of leg press can like make your quads so pumped that you can't even get out of the chair. And then uh, disruption is measured in a couple of ways. One is soreness, but another one is perturbation. Like how difficult is it for you to use your muscles normally? How crampy are they? How uh, uncoordinated are you? How weak are you compared to normal? You can do four sets of leg extensions and run up the fucking stairs. Four sets of leg presses, you ain't running nowhere. You might not even get out of the machine. So it's clearly, so that's raw stimulus magnitude. It just fucks you up more. And per set, it fucks you up more. And if you wanted to get the same amount of fucked up this, I some exercises, I'm not sure what the conversion would be. Like Steve, in your, in your your humble opinion, for you, how many sets of leg extensions would you have to do to match five sets of fifteen to twenty rep leg presses as far as raw stimulus magnitude to the quads? Give me your best answer. I, I literally I can't even imagine how many sets. I'd, at I least feel like ten. I wouldn't right? even at get least there. ten. <laughs> at least ten. And you may not ever get there. Like it may mm. just be like your knees start hurting. You just get tired. You might actually get to junk volume before you get to the raw stimulus magnitude. You know what I mean? Like you might actually be like, after set 12, you're like, I don't even know if I'm trying anymore. Like it just hurts. and I don't know. Right. There's just something you can't get there. And at that point, because you're into junk volume, your stimulus to fatigue ratio is poorer. And it's, it, and, it, and again, a lot of the muscles too. Here's another point, because this is a really great question. It's a very, very good uh, hypothesis. A lot of uh, exercises, are stimulative for multiple muscles. So for example, leg presses and squats grow your adductors if you do them properly for full depth just about as much as you ever need. So then there's actually no need to do. You can say, well, you could do a better job with a good girl, bad girl machine. No, you couldn't. And you get even bigger adductors doing it like that. And it's so much stimulus for your glutes that all you have to do is like three or four sets per session of glutes on top of that isolated. And that's all the glute training you need. So a lot of these compound movements, they don't stimulate just one muscle really well and the others poorly. Sometimes they do such a good job that they stimulate all the muscles really, really well. And they're just all around winners. Like a really, really well done medium or close grip bench, the tricep stimulus is giving you is not just fatigue. It's real stimulus. It will grow your tricep. And then maybe you just have to do another few sets of extensions on top of that and you get a well-rounded thing. In addition to that, sometimes compound movements like presses get your muscles in rep ranges isolations can't touch. Triceps will grow, will recruit the heaviest, baddest, most fast twitch motor units pressing. They won't recruit those a lot of times with extensions because your Golgi tendon organs in your elbows or in your tricep tendons close to your elbows, they just won't let you handle that. Like sets of five in the skull crush. Like, who, what the fuck? Like you're just going to be like, ah, fuck that. Like I've tried that. It doesn't fucking work. Sets of five in close grip bench you could do. And I promise you, your triceps are maximally active at various points. So a lot of times, it's not even that the uh, compound movements really target the one muscle, but all the others are targeted poorly. It could be like one muscle is great and the other one is just really, really good. And you just have to pepper, pepper in a bit of isolation volume to get the rest of them. So, so yeah, to, to round out the question, you're looking at raw stimulus magnitudes and stimulus to fatigue ratios, and you're not looking at stimulus to time ratio at all when you have all the time in the world. But on raw stimulus magnitude and on stimulus to fatigue ratio, compounds beat isolations a whole bunch 
anyway. And when they don't, use isolations, right? But when they do, use compounds because we don't care compound isolation. We're not in this for the dog, but we're in this for the best stimulus to fatigue ratios and the best stimulus maximum. That's it. Awesome. Yeah, and just to clarify uh, on the raw stimulus magnitude, is that the stimulus side of stimulus to fatigue ratio? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Cool. It's exactly and only what it is. It's I'm the glad. stimulus only. We don't care about the fatigue. Yeah. I hope I'm not the only one just because I'd heard you talk about them both and I was like, is I just wanted to, yeah, the clarification is perfect. Great, great question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we get to the next question, which is um, from Toby Johnson and he has asked – why does well, he says why does Mike emphasize full volume uh, sorry full range of motion training in all cases provided it doesn't injure you when the evidence is contrary on the matter can't a bro smash 21s on bicep curls without getting called out by the RP crew Sure. We're not interested in calling bros out. If we did that we would have nothing else to do cuz there's still a lot of calling out to do. <laughs> so um the evidence is not contrary to that. There's one study on the triceps which needs to be replicated before we go running. As far as I know, that's the only study that's shown partial range is better than full range. There's about eight other studies. Uh, Matt O'Hensel has summarized them very well. The show for range of motion just beats the living shit out of partials. So let's not go, the evidence is not contrary. That's not a correct interpretation of the evidence. What we could say charitably is there's some reason to believe that with some exercises and some exceptions, especially building a lot of metabolites, especially keeping the range of motion in the most challenging range and not getting into any ranges, which was more of a flexibility concern and just get you tired for a reason. Some of those exercises, they might actually be beneficial to do partial range of motion. As a one-time stimulative thing, sure. Runs into other problems, injury risk, tracking. You have no idea what fucking range of motion you're doing because it's arbitrary. Each time it changes a little bit, so you don't know if you're getting stronger. But if you're just going for raw stimulus and maybe even stimulus to fatigue, Sometimes shortening the range of motion is a good idea. That is under special circumstances and is the exception rather than the rule. So we don't actually think that you should be going full range of motion on everything always. We need to have a very good reason not to go full range of motion. So for example, my uh, former tier training partner, Charlie, and whenever he visits, again, training partner, um, he's been powerlifting for forever, so his shoulders are fucked up to some capacity. So on presses, he goes all the way down, but he doesn't lock out all the way. Because if he locks out, it fucks his shoulders up. You think I'm ever like, Charlie, you got to lock that shit out, bro. What the fuck, you're not growing. No, because he's got a real good reason that he still gets most of the movement. Still gets that most challenging part of the movement. We're fucking golden. We're money, right? And, you know, if there's a part of a movement that really just basically generates almost no force, you have to contort your body to get down there, then, of course, we're not saying it's a good idea. But you have to have a good reason for not doing full range of motion. Here's where it comes down to. Just on SFR, what's better? And most people would just agree when they try it, full range of motion is better than SFR. So what does that mean? That means that if you do curls like this versus full range of motion curls, the full range of motion curls give you a, a bigger pump. They hurt your joints less. They fuck your muscles up more. And you have to do fewer sets of them to get the job done. Well, fuck. Why the hell would you ever do partials? Now, on the other hand, if partials just fuck your biceps up like crazy and they feel better on the joints and the full range just feels like total shit and you're actually being honest, it really does. And it doesn't pump up your biceps. I'm never going to tell you to do full range of motion. I'll say, you know, consider it because the literature is really good because some, some muscle, there's some muscles you're not incorporating or some fibers you're not incorporating, avoiding full range of motion. But I think if you include one full range of motion bicep exercise and then a second exercise is partial to wherever you want to work on it, wherever it feels good, I think that's totally fine. So it's not a dogmatic thing. It just happens to work better. And I'll get to the actually really, really main point. Uh, and it's funny the way questions ask the bros. Nine times out of ten, the bros aren't doing some shit for optimality. They're doing it because they have fragile fucking egos. They just want to lift more weight than they actually can. 
Furthermore, 21s are dumb as fucking rocks because it saves the full range of motion for the end, which is fucking retarded. It's backwards, okay? Here's a real good, much better way to do 21s. I'll save you the fucking effort. 14s, okay? You do seven full range of motion curls, and when you can't anymore, you do seven partial range within the most challenging range, okay? That's it, because you're just too fucked up to do the full range of motion anymore, so now you can work on the partial because you still got some juice in. But the first set of 21s, we do like up a third of the way, waste of time. He's awful SFR, junk volume, literally junk volume, because you're not even getting anywhere close to failure. The second set where you're going like just the top range, again, I have no fucking clue what that's supposed to be doing. And then the third is when you're already really tired for no reason having to do with muscle stimulation. Your biceps have just been on for too long. They're just tired. All your faster twitching units are off anyway. Then you do a set of seven actual full range curls with a weight that would be bullshit. I got a better idea. Why don't you just do a full range of motion with that weight for seven reps at the beginning when you're not tired? Oh my God, it's going to fuck you up. Hey, I got a better idea. Why don't you do still more weight for 14 with full range of motion? Oh my God, it's going to fuck you up. And here's another really good idea. If you insist on partial range, do 14 full ones, take a rest pause, like breathe it for three seconds, and then as many partials as you can to maybe halfway up to just fry your shit. At that point, every single mini set is a limiting factor mini set. Your biceps are a limiting factor. 21s were a thoughtless, fucking totally moronic exercise. No one's ever taken the time to be like, why the fuck are we doing this? I hate it on every level. There's my 21s rant. Look, <laughs> clip this out and post it as a two-minute rant against 21s. It's brilliant. I, uh, I haven't even... Uh, 21s bring back memories of just following just what the magazines say. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember doing 21s and yeah, not even... I can't, I can't remember the last time I've done like a partial kind of range of motion curl so i can't even imagine what it what they feel like but very well said uh and i think that's yeah i can't say more than that ever since i've gone to full range of motion training even though i'm stronger more experienced more fatigued i get way less injuries and that's like that's big enough for me yeah let alone all the other benefits yeah and like I've, I've trained with plenty of folks have come through and i tried our training approaches and it's so funny because they'll be doing partials and they're like, I feel it like this. We're like, why don't you try a try full, try full with us. And they're like, all right, I'll do your workout. And we expose them to like, you know, our, our thing is like full range of motion hack squats or leg presses for the first time. And there's never been a workout where someone's like, yeah, that was easy. Like everyone's like, oh my God. Like I've never felt my quads. Like, I don't even know what's going on. Like I thought it was a 600 pound leg presser. With 315 for sets of 15, I can't even walk. Like, I, like I've got, I've had guys who were gonna do leg presses and then squats. They got through four sets of leg presses and they just stopped. They couldn't do the workout because they could get out of the machine. Like, they couldn't even reliably squat down to pick up their keys anymore. And it's like all those partials you're doing with 600. How does that feel now? And those people, almost all of them, never do partials ever again on leg press because they're like, dude, I'm wasting my time. So it's not like partials are like this fucking hardcore, super challenging thing that really fucks up your muscle. And the pros know about it, but like the stupid evidence-based skinny crowd science nerds are all doing full range and not feeling a thing. Real full range training will fuck you in the ass. And you're the only reason you're going to run from that shit nine times out of 10 is because you don't want the fucking meanness. You don't want the hard work. You're not talking about active range of motion and doesn't feel right here. Shut the fuck up. You just want to be able to still bench what you used to bench, bench, and not have to do full range of motion shit and actually grow some muscle trying it is uncomfortable to quote my friend Mike Sandelovich uh, speaking sarcastically his why would I ever want to squat that low what is it down there that I'm so interested in <laughs> <laughs> like that's it like it's tough going low and it's tough doing full ROM 
And if the, but the SFR is fucking awesome. And if the SFR isn't awesome for you, don't do it. Only do it on occasion. Only do a little bit of full ROM just to get those other motor units. Spend most of your time with partial ROM trimming. I just don't believe that for most people it is. And most people that say like it feels better when it's partial, they're lying to themselves flat out. Mike, out of interest, I don't know if you'll know um, off the top of your head. I don't. What's the definition that they use within studies for like full range of motion? Is there a standard definition? Do they have one? It's it's usually. Um, they define it within the study itself. So usually good studies will not phrase it as full range of motion. They will in the abstract, but when they define it operationally, it's called operational definition. They will say, we cataloged full range of motion as a descent of the hips below parallel or something like that, or bar touching the chest every time and to full extension of the elbows every single time. Like they have to define it with specific per exercise, right? So full range of motion doesn't mean like, oh, like when you're doing pull down, you rock your head at the beginning and then that's that's the only it's whatever they define it as and usually it's like the best way to define it in science is two distinct unmissable landmarks like bench press full range of motion it's the easiest thing in the world to define like you're locked out and then you touch your chest there's just no more full than that right whereas with a squat yeah you know it's going to be a little bit difficult to define usually when this they test the squat well full squat is is, is defined as they physically sat on their calves and or probably even better is they descended below parallel so a lot of the full rom versus partial rom studies and squats and stuff is they intentionally do like a knee angle of like 90 degrees for the partial and then a knee angle of like 110 or 120 degrees or a below parallel sit for the Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know why I questioned that you wouldn't know that. Of course, you would. <laughs> you know that as well. well. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I've, I've been because I've made it all up. Before, so. <laughs> That's right. Do we, we have time for one more question? One more would be great. Yeah. Fantastic. So this is this this might be a quick question. We might get to another one. Bill Davis. I just thought this was a nice, light-hearted one. Uh, is the gym bro concentration higher in Vegas than Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania? Did he mean Philadelphia? He may have Philadelphia, meant Philadelphia. is in Pennsylvania. Oh, it is in Pennsylvania. Yes, okay. it's like Just, the state. He knows America like, better than me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Steve, how dare you? you know? <laughs> Although, to be honest, I never, when they say shit about the UK, like locations, like where the strong men are from, it's like all it's four places. It's like, oh, he's from Surrey and <laughs> meddling upon time. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, is, there, is that a code? Is there a city? Is that a state? Do you guys have states? Um, but, uh, so in any case, yeah. So the state is Pennsylvania, the city is Philadelphia, it's Nevada's the state and Las Vegas is the city. So, so it's, this is a great question. Great question. The Jimbro concentration is a little bit higher in Las Vegas, but not by much, but it's a different kind of bro. In Philly, you get the Jersey, Brooklyn, New York, Philadelphia, Italian, like, yo, whoa, whoa, what do I do? Fucking curls. What up? Like that kind of shit. And then in Las Vegas, you get like backwards hat wearing, tribal sleeve tattoos. He's somehow involved in the gambling industry, but not quite sure. He's always got a big something big in the works. It's going to be fucking huge. It's going to be fucking huge. Trust me, it's going to be huge. And you're like, what's going to be huge? He's always plotting something. I've been I've already like I've been in Vegas for like three weeks. I had a guy offer me a business proposal between sets of hat squad. I was like, what the fuck? There's nothing you would ever get in Philly. Like in in Philly, you'd be like, yeah. It's pretty good. My uncle used to be a fucking 600 pound squatter. And shit, fuck up. Get out of my face. But the Vegas bros, they like, there's like a businessy side to them. Um, I'll tell you what, if anyone's remotely confused what a Vegas bro is like, Tiger King on Netflix, <laughs> the Vegas guy is the quintessential Vegas bro. Um, and it's a special, special case, but I love him. It's, it's great because you get to, you know, watch people. There's a guy at our gym 
who Jared, we've been here for two and a half weeks. Jared noted that he's asked out every attractive girl that we've seen there, like while we were there. Like the guy like would just walk up to him. He's like in his 50s probably, like a oh, wow. bald dude that's sort of muscular. He's just like, you can tell he's one of those people with no personal volume control. Like there's a girl lifting. He's like, that's pretty good. What's your name? And she's like, uh, me? He's like, yeah, what's your name? And I was like, uh, like it's, it's nice to talk to people at the gym. But for him, he's clearly after just one thing. But he's also so upfront about it. It's just like, you can't even hate the guy. Like the girls are like, oh, well, here's my name. Like they don't know even takes him seriously. But like, it's just funny. I love the whole, the, the, the bro, the gym culture is endlessly fascinating. <laughs> It's like those, uh, yeah, they've done like the take the piss videos of like the different creatures within the gym and <laughs> I can see it now. <laughs> 100%. Have we got time for one more? One more. Or you one do? More. Okay. So this one is from Jason Ladas, Lavdas, sorry. And he has said, how would you approach calf training when calves are always sore from job requiring lots of standing and walking? Wow always sore if your calves always have doms that to me would be pretty curious they should get used to it at some point mm. um honestly if they're always sore your work may be hitting you well enough and they'll be growing so just eat more and your calves will grow uh that would be my best answer but if they're so just tired then you know Squeeze in as much volume as you can and be really, really perceptive for your performance because your MRV is going to be really low because it has to deal with the fatigue from work. So squeeze out as much performance as you can from them. Uh, and if your performance ever dips, you know, it's too much volume really quick and it'll just be a lower volume situation that you'll have to do. You might be doing three sets of calves two or three times a week and that's all your calves can handle recovery-wise. So that would be my two answers. Awesome. Thank you very much, Mike. And thank you for your time. Have you got anything... You want to update the listeners with you? you? Got anything in the works with RP? I know you're still pumping out loads of content over YouTube, so I'd like to plug yeah. that again. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, YouTube is really big for RP. It's growing really fast. Um, Content-wise, oh yeah, the uh, updates for muscle hypertrophy guides are back going again. Uh, so those should be finished in a couple months. And the scientific principles book is uh, being edited very thoroughly and. The editing is going along pretty well and it's getting uh, close to done. That should be around by the end of 2020. Um, and hopefully there's uh, already two vaccines that have passed phase one trials for coronavirus and one of them in the UK, one in the US actually. Uh, and thanks Big Pharma. And hopefully by maybe as early as November, maybe early 2021, we can begin to vaccinate the world and this shit can be fucking over so we can go uh, to London yeah. and... Uh, fuck around and, and finally get the the uh captain america civil war shit going there it comes i'm i'm excited for multiple things that you said there i'm i'm very excited to just see i mean i expect the sales on the scientific principles of hypertrophy training for you i'm just expecting them to be wild compared like they deserve to be and i'm oh, just thanks, like dude, compared to your other books because i imagine the other books have done very well but if, i wouldn't be surprised if this is double triple some of the sales that you would typically get for those again yeah. like i'm not saying it from a any other aspect then i think it deserves to be and uh, it's incredibly well anticipated it's very anticipated thank you yeah hopefully it doesn't let anybody down <laughs> i'm sure it won't i have, I have no doubt it won't um 
Yes, that's right. And yeah, I, I am very excited for next year and hopefully that all will go ahead. In the UK, our gym's opening on Saturday. So hopefully, Whoa. yeah, things are getting You're going to wear a mask normal. and everything? I, there isn't legislation or anything to suggest we have to do that. So I prefer not to have to, but sure. if, if that seems to be like other people are or what's happening there. My recommendation, I'd like to make a formal recommendation to everyone listening, if and when your gyms open up and you have a choice to wear a mask or not, I would recommend wearing a mask at least as much as you can so that the transmission rate isn't as high as it could be and there's less of a chance that before the vaccine comes, they fucking close the gyms again. Because if you don't wear masks completely, the open the gyms, the transmission rates go up, they trace the, the shit back to gyms, it's just going to fucking close gyms again. But if people wear masks in the gym and they social distance well in the gym, they don't do anything stupid. The transmission rates could go up very little or not at all or up enough to where no one freaks out. And then all of a sudden you have a situation where, yeah, we're wearing masks, but we're in the gym. Because if you give me a choice between wearing a mask being at a gym, which is what I'm doing now, versus not being at a gym, it's open and shut. I'll wear a fucking mask for the rest of my life if I have to. Good news is the vaccines are coming and it's all going to be over in probably short order. I'd say six months to a year at the longest, depending on if regulatory agencies want to. Uh, you know, fucked up about it or not. But uh, until then, let's just fucking put the masks on and do our best to, I mean, for the good of everyone, spread the virus less, but also for our own selfish gym interests, it's probably just better to wear fucking masks at least some of the time. And, and also just social distance. Like, I have guys coming up to me at the gym like this. I'm like, hey, coronavirus. They're like, oh, yeah. And people try to shake my hand. Like, coronavirus. <laughs> like, oh. I had one guy on Instagram be like, why are you wearing that one? I forgot. It's this lie. I have like five people on Instagram over the course of the weeks be like, why are you wearing a mask? Like, motherfucker, where are you? And you live under a fucking rock? Like, we are just for fun. Just for fun. There's nothing going around in the world, you know? Anyway. <laughs> it's, um, it, I think in the UK from tomorrow, which it won't, this won't be out when people realize, but we're only just making it like legislation to have to wear it on, like, I think on the underground it is now and have been wearing it there, but, and I've been wearing it in supermarkets and things, but yeah. it's not, people aren't at the moment, uh, it's like 50, 50. So because in the gyms, it's not going to be legislated. I don't think it'll probably be, I reckon it'll maybe be 25% of people wearing it. Um, but I, I'm, you've convinced me and I think you'll probably convince some other listeners. So at least there's a few sure. more of us. Sure. I, I think I'm probably going to train maybe, 50 50 at home in the gym anyway because super. it's super convenient actually <laughs> but i'm lucky i've got space anyway <laughs> i won't continue to blab on very end lots of things to anticipate lots of things to be excited about so um yeah thank you once again mike thank you guys for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. 
So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another a really cool community for people within our little niche. It's going to be a website that will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will lock our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.